This podcast is brought to you by the Albany Public Library main branch and the generosity of listeners like you. What is a podcast? God, Daddy, these people talk as much as you do. Razib Khan's unsupervised learning. You know that genetics plays a huge role in our health, and more people are using genetic testing to determine risk for diseases like cancer for themselves and their kids than ever before. So I want to tell you about ORCID. It's the only company that does whole genome testing for embryos, testing before your child is born. If you're doing IVF, this is a clear choice now because now you can reduce risk for thousands of single gene disorders, including heritable forms of autism, pediatric cancers, and birth defects. Check them out at orchidhealth.com. Hey, everybody. This is Razib with the Unsupervised Learning Podcast. And I am here uh, with my friend, Dr. Wilfred Riley, who I think you will probably know uh, from his various podcast um, appearances, his essays, his book reviews, his scholarly publications, his books. Uh, I'll put all the links in the show notes, but um, he's also a professor uh, in Kentucky. And um, can you give, I mean, look, I know academics, you got like, you know, various affiliations here and there. Uh, just tell me like what your top line, like what you usually tell people, like, what do you do, Wolfred? Like, who are you with? I'm who, are your people as, who are your people, as they would say? Woof, woof. Uh, I'm an associate professor of political science at Kentucky State University. And other than that, I'm a the standard journals and so on. But that that is my uh, one line job to script. OK. And like um, you were not always in academia. Um, and I think uh, you're not like what I, my understanding is you're not one of those like, you know, undergrad to grad school to professorship. Right. You did some other things. Can you talk about your background a little bit? Like, where are you from? Like, um, you know, I. I follow you on Twitter, um, social media, X, whatever you want to call it. Uh, and my understanding is you're not from the hood. Um, like you just made a face. <laughs> the listener oh, like, yeah. So like, just, just give give a general sense because, um, you know, uh, I, I think a lot of people don't know. Yeah. So I've actually had a really interesting life. I mean, the, the hood is a relative term. I mean, I would think of the hood as an area where no one works. So in that sense, I was probably more from a series of tough working class neighborhoods. I mean, I was born on the south side of Chicago. I lived in Wicker Park on the north side when that was uh, pre-gentrification. They didn't have all the $80 backpack stores yet. So it was jokingly known as Needle Park. Um, I moved to East Aurora, which is another large, well-known kind of blue collar neighborhood in, in that area. Chicago is second really only to New York in Metroplex size. I mean, you know, L.A. solved this problem just by combining all the suburbs into one city. But, I mean, if you go from Chicago out through all kind of the inner suburbs to Aurora to Naperville, I mean, all these are cities of several hundred thousand people. I mean, the population of Aurora, I think, is 297,000, something like that. I have to check it out. But um, the east side of the city is a well-known kind of, like I said, blue-collar area. It was Aurora, overall, was the murder capital of the Midwest region of the country during the period of time when I was in high school because of conflict between black gangs coming from Chicago after the, the jets, the projects were torn down, and the local Hispanic and Caucasian gangs who ended up winning the conflict, actually. But um, yeah, the east side is very heavily Latino, a fair number of Eastern European immigrants, fair number of African-Americans. So those were the areas that I, I lived in coming up. And I had a pretty normal sort of lower working class childhood um, my white tees and my skateboard. I went to East Aurora Senior, which is technically considered an inner city school, so on. But um, after that, I went through a bunch of progressions in life. Like I had done well in school. 
And I'm also black and I'm from a lower income uh, census district, which I assume helped when I was applying. And also my mom, by the way, I don't know if I mentioned this. The reason that I lived in all these areas is that my mom, who is from the Chicago Ward family, which is a upper class black family, uh, decided to sort of do good during the 1960s. So I don't know how much she talked to the rest of the family when I was a kid that they're all that always seemed a little bit strained. And we basically lived in the areas where she taught. That's why I was in all these places. So mom taught me to read at, I mean, age one or two. I mean, there were books throughout the house and calligraphy scrolls and this kind of stuff. So I had an enormous starting advantage in addition to just benefiting from, you know, my background as someone who was literate. So I ended up going to college. I went to college for quite a while. I mean, I went to uh, Southern Illinois for undergrad school, kind of legendary party school down there in the forest preserves at the bottom of the state. Uh, in Illinois, there's a joking term, BFE, but fucking Egypt, which refers to the region of the state that's in Egypt. Yeah, like all that, like Cairo, Memphis. I mean, the the, the pronunciation's a little off, but uh, Carbondale, where the mascot is the Egyptian dog, the Saluki, all that is in the deep southern corner of the state. So I went to college there, majored in political science, did reasonably well, uh, graduated, went on to law school at the University of Illinois, which was a big culture shock. I was like 20 or 21. I mean, that's not quite Ivy, but it's one of the better Big Ten law schools. And people are dead yeah. serious. They're like 30-year-old prosecutors in my classes and so on. So kind of a sharp shift upward. You know, this is how you wear a suit, young man, and all that. And uh, graduated. And at this point, I expected to go on to kind of a standard upper middle class life. But that emphatically didn't happen. Like, I got an offer from Southern Illinois to come back and get a PhD over what was going to be based on the level of teaching the program required and so on, uh, minimum five years of study from a program called DFI, Diversifying the Faculty of Illinois, which wanted more minority and, as I recall, more male teachers in the state of Illinois, uh, in elite high schools and colleges, so on down the line. So I went back to grad school. And when I'd been in grad school for a couple of years, my mom got very sick. So I went back to Chicago to help her out. And this started like a 10-year odyssey of all these crazy jobs. Like I taught in the Chicago City Colleges, which are generally in, in or close to the hood. So that's like Malcolm X College, Harry Truman, where I taught classes for a while. Uh, I was a Canvas field manager for the Human Rights Campaign, the Gay and Gender Rights Group. For are you? Uh, are you? Are, are you? Are you part of the Rainbow Nation? No, no, I'm not. Like, uh, so the one of the things that a lot of people don't understand, although I think you do, about the activist left is that they hire mercenaries heavily. So almost all of our canvassers were like male fighters. I mean, like guys who'd been athletes in high school or college, sort of hood dudes. There were a few passionate feminist women, but they were just as a uh, body physically. But the actual job of street canvassing in a major city is just like you you're in Chicago or Detroit. And you go to generally poor neighborhoods where not a lot of people are already signed up as members of the group. We also went to the Magnificent Mile, which is just as intimidating in a different way. And just sort of post up like, hey, got a minute for gay marriage? And I mean, the reactions are exactly what you'd expect from, you know, physically hostile encounters to like people joyously saying yes and giving you $50 a month, people trying to make out with you. So I was one of the leaders of this group. I managed our uh, in-city and infield canvassers, a lot of small groups under our director, for uh, quite a while. It was a very fun job. I mean, like we went on a camping canvas, as it was called, to Southern Illinois. I think we took one to the actual Deep South. I didn't go on that one. But just very much. That's what Freedom Rider in my bio half jokingly refers to, that I actually was a local level leader in a civil rights organization for a couple of years. And I'm pro-gay rights, but I wasn't all that passionate about the topic. It was just a fun, competitive job. 
and it's also a paid job, by the way. I mean, as I recall, we paid 15% yeah. of everything that you made over a very low baseline. So we had canvassers. Many of them are poor and, you know, hungry in the literal sense if you're just starting out. But we had senior canvassers that were making probably 30, 35 bucks an hour. Because, I mean, you go to these these areas and you might sign up 10 people at $30 a month on a good day. And you're you're not doing that for charitable reasons. I mean, you would get 15% of the 3000 over, you know, $270. So the, the organized left is much better at the ground game than the organized right. That's something I still notice today. But, so um, you got to so, – so you're um, – so basically what you're saying is these people are hustlers, you know? Yeah, they're – They run they're, people down, yeah. No, they're classic city kids, yeah. I mean, like with the, the clipboard and like self-defense stick over the back yeah. and like sunglasses yeah. in the summer. And they give you like a shirt. So people would put the like these bright golden and blue um, equal sign shirts on. I mean, they were they were a fun group and they were not, you know, sexually inactive with one another, generally speaking. I mean, that was actually something the leadership kind of encouraged, like, you know, everything friendly and consensual. But people would go drink, hook up, party. So it was very much a college and kind of young person's job. We had a lot of people that seemed to almost be doing it as their alternative to more traditional community service, the military or Salvation Army or something like that. No, for two years, I'm going to, you know, stand out here through the weather changes on the south side of Chicago and do this for gay rights. And the bill that we were backing, the ENDA, the Employment Non-Discrimination Act, uh, actually, I have some problems with that now as the trans movements advance. But uh, that and the other thing that we were backing, which is gay marriage, were pretty successful. Like gay marriage, Obergefell passed while friends of mine were still doing this. And they were like joyous. I mean, there were giant parties throughout Chicago and New York and so on. Gay pride came the day after the decision came down in both cities, actually. So, I mean, like Roman level Bacchanals. But anyway, like, I'm not the actually like the most liberal guy. I favored general gay and women's rights. But after a couple of years of people you know, trying to square off with me for doing that. I just got a, I got a job. But that again was one of the classic kind of city boy jobs. Like I worked in a series of sales, mostly high-end sales. I wasn't really a trader in the classic stock trading sense, but bullpens along LaSalle Street and Michigan Avenue. Like I worked for Marcus Evans, which is a legendarily aggressive British company. And our North American headquarters is in Chicago. And the the goal of that business is taking our clients who are like the CEOs of little companies and hustling until we get them meetings with the CEOs of big companies. So we were tracking down like the CEO of Walmart Americas and trying to arrange these meetings for our clients who might be not saying whether they were or not, but like LifeLock companies at that level, um, weapons makers. I mean, just like it very much one of the, again, kind of classic city jobs that went on for a couple yeah. of years, paid quite well. So I actually took a break and finished my PhD at the end of that period. And so now you're you're Dr. Riley, and um, and you're you're tenured now, or are you not tenured yet? Yeah, I'd probably say less if I wasn't tenured. I'm I'm through the first level of academic tenure. Now there are like five possible if you count emeritus with a or you know salaried chair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, you're 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 uh, your department. You're yeah. you you're in a, you're in a HB uh, HBU. Yeah, HBCU. Yeah, historically. HBCU, yeah. yeah, historically black college, which has turned out not to matter all that much. Like, I mean, it's. I think it's cool. I mean, I'm not racist. I'm on the right now politically, but I mean, like, the, <laughs> I'm just saying, like, the I think they'd have an issue if the stereotype of conservatives as bigots were accurate. And so, like, every day I was going beyond the hardest hereditarianism and like reading, you know, V Dare in the office or something. But I mean, like, in in reality, the HBCUs are like 160 of them, 
And they're mostly decently ranked colleges in the South. I mean, like Howard, Morehouse, Spellman are all HBCUs. Fisk is an HBCU. Um, Meharry, the medical college. So in there's almost a funny element to this without going off on a ramble because discrimination and hiring and so on is illegal in any business. So we as an HBCU have to deal with the question of what do you do as an all black institution? Like, should we have affirmative action for whites, given that white test scores in Appalachia are often below those for the upper middle class black kids we're bringing in? And the, the, the meetings can get hilarious just unintentionally. You know, like, what should we do for this population injured by bond servitude in the past? But in a, on a day to day basis, it, it just doesn't doesn't matter. That happens to be part of the institution. So we have a statue yeah. of um, the great black educator. I'm going to say Dubois, but I know that's wrong. I'm going to look that up. But I mean, we have we have that sort of thing as opposed to union generals or something like that on the campus. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. OK, so you're you're at Kentucky State. And, um, you know, as you said, you're on the right. Um, you know, you're a quote unquote black conservative, maybe like are you are you identified as that sometimes? Yeah, although I don't really think that that means too much. Um, so. Oh yeah, just the statues that we have are Whitney Young. We got a big. We have like a oh Whitney Young, yeah, I know Whitney Young, yeah, 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 great guy. We've got a twelve foot brass Whitney Young at the top of one of those uh, majestic staircases that you see on any decent sized campus, and so on. So it's just it's him instead of General Lee or General Sherman. Um, you know, I, I like the HBCU background. In practice, if you're teaching stats, it doesn't matter much. It's just half your students are going to be black. Um, but it, uh, the black conservatism thing, I think, is fairly interesting because being a black conservative doesn't really mean that you're black and you're a man of the right. Like when I look listen to a lot of black conservatives, like I love John McWhorter, but I mean, he's a New York Times columnist. He's just a, yeah, he's a lib. No, John's a lib. John's yeah, a lib he, now. He's 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 uh he's 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 moved back since his uh, uh city Manhattan Institute City Journal. I mean, so look, I've been listening to these guys. Yeah. I, I think I told Glenn this story. Uh, I actually emailed John in the year 2000, I think when he was a Berkeley professor. He actually responded to me. He doesn't remember me, but I've been watching um, the Blogging Heads show. Well, now it's on you know the Glenn show that's on Substack since 2008. And back then, as you probably know, uh, Glenn was the lefty Hillary stand that was defending the Palestinians. And John was the neoconservative who, if not a Republican, um, he was on NPR in the mid 2000s defending the Iraq war, mostly just because, well, he was a Manhattan Institute and he's kind of admitted that, well, I mean, he feel like he had to have an opinion. He's like, well, I mean, all the people he knew and seemed like, you know, liberal people also were pro Iraq war. Right. So, you know, he was there. And then over the years, especially during the Obama period, they kind of like cross paths. And now now that now Glenn is the conservative and he is definitely like you, I would say he's, he's center right now. Um definitely like soft on Trump and John is the center left, you know, more heterodox liberal again. So, you know, life is long and, um, you know, it's hard to define these things. I mean, I will say, um, I don't generally, uh, use the term black conservative because, uh, who the hell cares what your race is? Like, I no one's ever called me a the, a brown conservative. By the way, it's not all non-white people. I like if someone called me that, I'd be like, "What the hell? <laughs> like, why, why are you why are you referring to me being brown? Like that's like fucking weird." You know what I'm saying? So, um, in general, I think uh, I think it's well taken. Like Shelby Steele objected to being called a black conservative because he's like, "I'm just a conservative." Or actually, back in the 1990s, he was a liberal. 
Um, but he was called a black conservative because he was off the reservation on affirmative action. And then eventually he just kind of caved and was like, okay, whatever, I'm conservative, you know? Yeah, you no, know? I, I actually think the phrase black conservative is useful because it explains the distinction that's being described. And to be a black conservative is simply to be heterodox on American race issues. Like, that's all it means. So like John McWhorter obviously famously wrote uh, Losing the Race, where he described, and this to me is my one response to both racialists and hereditarians. I mean, like many variables can impact the DV, but like John goes in this book through what we've later seen uh, Brookings do in more detail, but like the study time data, how much time is black students and multiple universities spent pursuing the work? These were kids in the same program as the white kids. I mean, so you can't argue that they're in simpler classes or something. And he said, well, Obviously, the biggest problem for the black community today, um, paraphrasing him a little bit, but it is these issues like the fact that we study a third as much as whites or Asians or that there's this sort of tolerance of crime as a rebellion where we're making these neo black exploitation movies in the late 90s. Like clearly, objectively, these are bigger issues than racism in upscale colleges. And that, that's something that's obviously true, that I think in a bar or on a golf course or on a basketball court, like 90% of white or black, certainly males would agree with, but that you're not supposed to say. So that's what makes John like an outlaw conservative on everything else. I mean, if you asked him about healthcare policy, yeah, I, I would assume he'd be a standard liberal, not even center left, like liberal guy. Uh, and I mean, the New York Times readership loves him. He's just a mildly, he's no more than mildly. He's just heterodox on race. So that's what that means. Like I'm very heterodox on race, but I also like coming from the business world and so on. I'm, I'm pro gun. Uh, I would stop illegal immigration almost totally. Wouldn't be very difficult to do it. I'll build some kind of border fence even and institute E-Verify. You know, I mean, just like I, I have no patience for crime whatsoever. You know, I don't think being poor is an excuse for crime. You can check the Asian data in New York City. So I actually do have a ton of conservative positions, whereas I don't think uh, John, for example, would. But we'd both fall in that heterodox on race category. Yeah, I'm going to say something really quickly. Um, it's not part of my plan, but um, the immigration thing, I've been thinking about it least. You know, I come out of, um, you know, like if you go to Wikipedia, a lot, I mean, it still lists me as a paleo conservative. Um, so um I I was pretty skeptical of like the mass immigration regime. I mean, I myself am an immigrant, but you know, I like I like the point system, you know, and all that stuff. I do have to say, like, just like straight up, I got to be honest. Twenty twenty three, the system's really broken. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't really, I don't really hold it against people for being illegal anymore. The the the, the nightmares that I've when we came in the nineteen eighties, it was a different system. Like today's system is just so so broken that um I. I just I, I can't hold it against anyone at this point. Um, I know people who like tried to go through the legal system, and it is a nightmare. It is a nightmare, man. Uh, but anyway, uh, just my little after twenty years, like I have changed on this partly just because the system itself is just like not sustainable. I don't know what's going to happen because the left, like basically the Democrats, do not. Um, you know, they have some identity politics issues of like people that they want uh, to not uh, go to the back of the line. Um, and you know, the Republicans don't want another 1996 as asylum to happen. Uh, they would be, you know, the Republicans, even like Trump and a lot of the restrictionists would be okay with just being like, okay, you have a STEM PhD, you can come, you know, like you gotta be a hardcore racialist, you know, it's, uh, to really, um, and that's a very small minority. Um, 
Okay, I'm not going to say who. <laughs> there are people out there who like are mainstream publications. They just like let's like let's just be like uh, honest. They just don't like Asian people, you know. But anyway, <laughs> um, but um, yeah, like um, I'm going to ask you. I want to ask you though. Um, you know, so you're you've been speaking um about various cultural political issues, and you wrote the hate crime hoax: how the left is selling a fake race war, taboo ten 